Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hello and welcome back to the Will I Like It podcast. Today, my guest is Christopher Mullin from the Rookery Craft Mead up in uh, Perthshire in Scotland. Now, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, So what we're going to do today is uh, he's been kind enough to send me some of his meads. We're going to go through, sample some of them, talk a bit about what he does um, and a little bit about history of mead as well. So um, how is it you got started with making mead? Um, in the last century, in the late 1900s, when I was at university, uh, I, I studied Gaelic at university, um, studying the language of the Gaels. Yeah. And with most language courses, we cover a lot of history, the culture, the literature, and so on. So we started learning about Mead uh, through the Celtic civilization. So looking at the Celts in Europe, the Celts, the insular Celts in Britain, the Roman accounts, Greek accounts, all that sort of stuff going back. Two and a half thousand years. One of the things I noticed was meads did come up now and again in some of the literature um, and some of the history. I did a little jump across into the English department and did a couple of courses in the history of the English language and Anglo-Saxon. We studied Beowulf, it stops in a mead hall. What mm-hmm. I noticed is I was buying mead off the shelf just because I was, you know, reading about it and so on. Mm. And the thing I noted, and I, I had a very strong interest in the living history and not just reading about history in books, but thinking, right, okay, what does that mean? Why did that get written down? Why is that important? Yeah. And with mead, I was drinking this stuff and it was not matching the descriptions from the 6th to the 9th century that we were studying in the original okay. language. And immediately I thought, why not? So I started brewing. So back at first year halls of residence in Aberdeen, single room, Two demijohn gallons by the bed, by the radiator, blubbing away. That's how I got into it. So back in 1993, I just started as a homebrew. Wow. Um, did also my university days. I remember at one point, I think it was in fourth year, my, my final year, looking at finishing up, so a few months left before exams. I need to wind this up because my hobby was quite big. I did a quick stop take of my single room in our flat, shared flat. I had 56 yes. gallons of mead, Ooh. brewing, <laughs> racking, or bottled. Um, yes. And there were three brewers in the flat. Friend Steve, he was a beer maker. The other friend, Terry, he was a sort of mead wine and beer maker. Well, we were all brewing. The three of us ran mm. the homebrew club at university. We ran our first beer festival as students, etc. Yeah, it's just a hobby. Simple as that. Um, That's been pretty popular. 
I would like to say that, but nah. <laughs> no, we did. To be honest, I didn't drink much, even as a student. I liked brewing. I gave it away, went to parties, yeah. took a bottle and left it behind. Oh, typical student stuff. It was never about getting drunk. It was about the passion. I very quickly realised the passion in looking at old things and trying to mm. do them. And Mead was part of that. So I, I did arms and armour. We did reenactment as well. Look at old things yeah. and learn them. We looked at weapons and armour and carriages. How would you use that? So we, yeah, looked at mythology. What does that mean? Where does that myth come from? What is that myth trying to teach us and tell us? So it was kind of a theme through my whole degree. It was looking at here is the evidence we have, be it literature or archaeology. Yeah. What did that, why did that person 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, create that thing, be it a weapon, a cooking instrument, or a story? A piece of mythology. What was their intention? What were they teaching? What were they creating? What were they? What? How was this tool used? Just, a, I think I'm still interested. In. Um, so yeah, Mead came became a sort of living history extension. Albeit I did it in also residence and in my flats. Looking at flavors, looking at techniques. So I, did, I went through a phase of looking at 12th century, 13th century accounts of mead making. This is the monastic phase. So I did a number of experiments at the time of using traditional um, 12th century techniques. I did, I remember reading one or two things about winemaking in uh, ancient Rome. So I tried some stuff, little things like, you know, you have a little bubbler that lets the gas out, but doesn't yeah. let infection in if you've done, ever done home brewing. So yeah, I've done a fair bit. You didn't have those in Roman times. Here. Yeah, cool. So they didn't have those in Roman times. What did they use? They would use a layer of olive oil that lets the bubbles out, infection stays out as well. So I did brewing like that. So I'd, yeah, that's how I got into it. Some thirty just years more, ago. yeah, more experimenting <laughs> with hysterical, yeah. historical techniques then, as well as as the flavors yeah. themselves. Yes, this whole thing. So yeah. did university. After that, I joined the army and did the better part of twenty years in the army, where mead making was a and beer making and wine was a hobby throughout my time in the army. Mm. Uh, 2015, I came out, had enough, let's go do something less boring instead, was going into teaching, I was going to go and teach Gaelic, when I had a moment of clarity on the road to Damascus. I had a wee thought of, you know what, I've just got my army money, I've got a whole, I've got the rest of my life ahead of me. Why? I mean, I'm interested in teaching, but why just jump into another career, another salary, another structure? And this came to my mind, and I thought, now's my chance. If I do not have a shot of this now, in this natural hiatus in life, before I get stuck into the next career, I might never do it. And, I, and it was always a case of go and do teaching, build up some money, and then and I thought, oh, I've just done a career for 20 years, built up some money, why not now? And if it fails, I'll go into teaching. Hmm. And here I am, eight years later. So a, a lot of your flavours, are they sort of things you've experimented with back in your uni days that have sort of carried on through or have you moved away Actually, from yes. sort of So either things I've experimented with or sort of flavours I kind of can equate to. We, we did loads of quite crazy experimental stuff back in university days. There was lots of pineapple mead, hazelnut mead, coconut mead, all sorts. Um, it was a case of what's cheap in Tesco, what's reduced to get rid of? Oh, there's some fruit. Yeah. Let's brew that. Um, so the, yeah, there was lots of just mucking about. Some of them were horrific. 
Some of them were excellent. Some of them, you know, it was all also a mixed experience. But that, that's just, yeah. that was just my hobby. That, as I say, it wasn't about the drinking. It was about, uh, it's a rainy Saturday afternoon in Aberdeen. What should we do today? Let's go and get the money. Let's brew. And it wasn't about the end result necessarily. It was about spending three or four hours in the kitchen with mates or with the girlfriend or with whatever, just chilling, brewing. Mm. That's just what I did. <laughs> and then... Um, so all of those brews, those like, uh, you know, whatever it is, 70, 80 brews that I did over those four years kind of got stored away. And even at the time, I remember thinking, this is actually quite good stuff. I wonder if I could sell this. Not, not that I was going to, but in the future, I could probably sell this. Quality-wise, it's kind of there where people want, to, want it. Um, yeah. So I think that, that seed was planted at the end of my university days. And then I say, mm. 20 years later, coming to the army, that could have yeah. bubbled back up to the surface. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as you said, like the mead that was available at the time, you didn't think matched sort of your expectations. Right. So, um, what, so what, I, kind of... what I drew from were with three main sources that I can cite is one is um, Anglo-Saxon, things like Reef uh, at Abatha and Beowulf, where mead yeah. is described. Uh, one of them is... Um, the Igadodhan, which is a poem based around the 6th century AD, takes place in what is now Edinburgh Castle Rock. And what it describes is, is an incursion from the south by the Anglo-Saxons into the what then were key Celtic-speaking people, so Brythonic-speaking people, Welsh, old Welsh effectively. Um, and they gathered up their manpower, trained them up, to create a war band to go down and defend their southern borders at the Battle of Catraith. I can't remember the date, 6 something, 640 something, I think. Somebody will tell me I'm wrong. Uh, anywho, so the poet, the poem is post-battle, looking back at the process of raising the army, training the army, where the youth, the glorious, thin-limbed, athletic youth, were given meat for a year and a day. Now, that is, that's kind of a poetic code for they were fed, they were watered, they were trained, they were clothed, etc. They were backed for a year and a day. But So the meat is the pinnacle of what they received. They were, they were winding down. Um, but, but in the broadest sense, fed, and they were trained and they were equipped. They were sent south to the Battle of the Trith and they got absolutely mollicated, completely slaughtered. And the poem is a... Is a lament saying, if it weren't for the beguiling sweet mead, our glorious youth would still be with us today. They would still be alive. They would still be singing and dancing and playing in the woods. And, you know, it's, it's a very bittersweet poem. Mm. Uh, and that, that was kind of the turning point battle that resulted in the angles moving north and, and so on. Um, but that gives some quite fair, quite vague, but quite interesting descriptions of mead. And it's sort of character. It doesn't specifically say, oh, taste of hollyhocks and coconuts, but it does give a sense of the lightness of the mead, the sort of effervescence of it is the impression I get. Um, mm. Whereas the mead I was drinking was, I, I now retrospectively know, but I didn't understand at the time, but I now know to be a sugar and honey fermentation, quite heavy, sticky, cloying. So those two characters just did not match. I could not make them fit in my head. One of the things I was playing with at the time as well, was different honey types. So my commercial meads now, with one exception, use the same two honeys in everything I do. And this might be a good time to try some simply called mead. 
Yep, I've got a bottle. All this is, is this yeah. is a fermentation of honey and water. That is what mead is. It is a fermentation of honey and water. The fermentable, the thing that produces or provides the sugar in order to fermentation, for fermentation to create the alcohol, is honey. Honey is the fermentable. Now, in yep. brewing, you have two primary ingredients, fermentables and adjuncts. In beer, for instance, your fermentable is grain, malted grain or whatever, but grain. Grain produces the sugars from which the alcohol comes. In beer, an adjunct is the hops. You don't ferment hops, you flavour beer with hops. They are not providing alcohol, they're providing flavour and bitterness and preservative, but, but flavour. So mm. for me, this is a honey fermentation. It has no adjuncts. Mead is a fermentation of honey. So, um, what uh, sort of honey do you use on this one? So what I'm using here, and across all my range with one exception, is uh, wildflower honey and some heather honey. So that's my choice. There's no reason why I chose those two. There's no, there's no external reason forcing me to choose one or two of those. I have done my experimentation. I really like light meads. I like the light honey, therefore the, the wild, the wildflower honey that gives me that light meat flavor. And the majority of what I agree with is wildflower honey. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, what wildflower honey is, is if you go to Tesco's and buy Tesco's own honey, that is a wildflower honey. It's a kind of industry term that says, we don't really know what the bees went to, kind of everything. Yeah. So it's not a single flower source, it's where the bees have had access to lots of things. Gale's honey, mm -hmm. Tesco's own honey, Asda's own honey, whichever it is, will almost certainly be wildflower honey. It will tend to be a light uh, and this thing's odd, I like sweet honey. You do get non-sweet yeah. honey, believe it or not. Um, so it'll be a light sweet honey with not a head character or, or mouthfeel. That's the kind of characteristic I'm looking for because that gives me these light, quite wine-like meats rather mm. than, if you can think of some of the better-known brands, quite heavy, quite syrupy, quite sticky meats. Definitely syrupy, a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, and and... And that is a function of the fermentable. So, so as I say, I was experimenting with different honeys at the time. You can get darker meads, and we will come to a dark one at the end. You can get darker, heavier meads by using darker and heavier honeys. Um, I, I know, though, however, a lot of the commercial meads are using sugar. It's one of those things. It's cheaper. I don't like doing it. I refuse mm. to. The only sugar you'll ever get from me at the rookery is in your tea or coffee. I can promise that. <laughs> only time I use sugar. Everything I ferment is honey. Yeah. So that's really important to me. That is what meat is. That is what meat has always been. There are other things where you may add honey to wine. Yeah, that's been done for a couple of thousand years. You can buy that in the shops today in the UK. That's not mead. You can ferment grape juice and honey together. That's cool. That's been done for thousands of years. It's a nice, good, it's a good story. Still not mead. Um, so you can use honey in fermenting in a number of different ways. My point of view is if you want to make mead, you ferment the honey. We can add adjuncts, and I, and I do add adjuncts. So what I don't do is I'm not making a range of meads using a range of honeys. If you want that, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but there's a guy called Bob. Bob of More Mead does amazing meads using a wide range of different honeys. 
that's his approach and it's a completely legitimate approach and I really like his stuff and he gets an amazing mm. variety of flavor through using different honeys he's an example yeah. of one approach yeah. making different products I've chosen not to do that so with the one exception that summer mead I have wildflower heather honey in everything and roughly this approximately the same ratio across the board I get my varieties by adding adjuncts broadly speaking um but the one we're just trying here, honey water uses mm. as it comes. So I, one of the things that I've chosen to do as well is I've chosen to go for higher alcohol. Uh, because mead mm. can be sweet, it doesn't have to be, but can be sweet. I felt when I set up the business that going that higher alcohol would cut into the sweetness or any sweetness that's there. Even my less sweet meads, there's still often that character of honey, even though it's not sweet. Mm. But there's that mouthfeel of honey. So again, the alcohol cuts into that and provides a nice balancing contrast to the sweetness and, the, and so on. I also did market thinking, and I decided that no one else at that point was really doing a higher alcohol except for Lancashire at that point. Yeah. So it was about market placement. It was about it was about flavor of birds, about market placement. It was about quality levels. It was about a number of other things and unique selling points. So I was positioning myself in the market, but largely it was about flavor. Um, whilst I'm very hooked into the archaeological and historical bits, seventeen percent probably wasn't really doable in that Bronze Age yeah. period. I'm interested in. Not saying it was impossible. It was unlikely. So I have done wild fermentations using plum skins, using grape skins, using other things. And I, and I was able to get 8 9% quite consistently. So that's definitely doable. Those wine strengths needs using Neolithic and Bronze Age techniques. 70% no, but that's, that's a, this isn't a, an archaeological reconstruction for a museum. It is still a commercial product. So yeah. I went for 70%. But that one there, that simple mead, Simple as it comes. I, 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 when I'm selling this, I will characterize it as being quite shady light. So there is a lightness, but there is also a richness. It's not super sweet. It's kind of in the medium part of my sweetness range in my spectrum. Um, mm. And I would also describe it as a slight aftertaste, a slight floral aftertaste, but not flowery, it's just slightly floral, yeah. which is coming from the hair of honey. So the hair of honey's got a nice rich floral flavor and it's local honey um the guy that i get my honey from isn't i'm pointing over there as if you, you can see is, is he lives, he's he's the other side of the river from me and his yeah he is his little he's got a wee sort of garage where he does all the honey processing at the bottom of the road from from the rookery it's the hives are on the same hill that i'm on <clears throat> so you mentioned so, you mentioned earlier about wildflower honeys from like your tesco's your supermarket stuff is there going to be much difference? So if someone's going to brew their own mead, is that going to achieve as good a mead as if they get it from you know, a local producer like you are? As far as the honey quality is concerned, it will be exactly the same because the guy that I buy my large, my wildflower honey from packs for Tesco. Oh, so okay. his honey yeah. is going in rookery mead. It's also going into jars on the shelf at Tesco. There is no difference. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same honey. I only wondered because it's a lot cheaper, isn't it, when you get the own brand? I've done it myself. Yeah. fairly frequently yeah. um, and I just so wondered whether the quality of honey is very important and the flavour of honey is very important but and, and 
I, I, I know the guy that the honey supplier quite well. My wife worked for him for a wee while as well. I have my my sources were inside the company. And so I, I I remember about five years ago, I think it was, there was a lot of talk about, oh, you can't trust honey, it's all adulterated honey from China, honey from here is all uh, so that's that's not what I'm being told. So one of the things I went I did when I heard that story is I went straight down to Andrew and said, right, talk to me about honey getting imported. Cause because I use an imported honey and I've never I've never been shy about explaining yeah. that. Mm. Heather honey is from over there. My 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 wildflower honey is imported. It's it's a commercial product, um, especially the quantities mm. I'm buying, buying it in. Uh, talk to me about honey. I said so. He explained to me the import process. He talked to me about the testing process. So at the time, um, pre-Brexit, all honey came into um, the UK first. I think it was Amsterdam, if I remember correctly, and received mm. a ten percent check, looking at physical characteristics, looking at melting point, blah blah blah, viscosity. Yeah. Anything that went outside of parameters got taken for a genetic deeper test. That then came into Ramsgate. Ramsgate gate would likewise do a 10% mm. characteristic test. Anything at the parameters would go for a genetic test. It would then come to Andrew, and Andrew chose to, but didn't have to, but he chose to then do a further 10% check, randomized. And anything that didn't come into parameters would then get sent away for testing. So certainly back then, it was going through three randomized mm. tests. Now, now I think it comes direct here, so it's still going through two randomized tests, but a lot of the honey comes across from Europe anyway, just because of the way trade works. So yeah, he, he sat me down, explained it all to me, and I went away completely content that honey's honey. That story seems to come from US honey, which doesn't have the kind of testing regime that we had. In the US, a lot of honey was being adulterated, not so much having something added to it, but the bees were being fed sugar syrup rather than getting to flowers. So there's still honey. Yeah. Just honey from sugar syrup rather than from flowers. So that mm. story is out there. People are still to this day concerned about adulterated honey in Britain. My viewpoint, having gone into it, is don't worry, it's all good. If you buy honey from a legitimate supplier in, in the UK, it's good honey. Mm. End of story. And that's why I, I'm not shy about saying I imported honey. I'm not shy about saying my honey is exactly the same honey in the jar at Tesco's because it's good honey. I stand by it. Mm. So yeah. if that does anything to help people understand a wee bit with the machinery behind how honey gets to this country, hopefully there's a wee bit of confidence there. It's it's good. If it reaches this country, it's good. Mm. Yeah, it's a good, it's, it's a good point because obviously if someone's going to brew their own stuff, the main ingredient, as you said, is honey. Yeah. Go so to test going to start honey. looking at Yeah, there you go. Start there. And <laughs> actually, that's my point. So as a home brewer, go and buy Tesco's own, as his own, whatever, Brew a gallon. Brew a gallon of honey only mead, like like we've just been drinking. Mm. Brew it again. Brew it again. Once you've done a cup, done a couple of gallons of honey only mead using a really simple light honey, and you can do it fairly consistently, consistently without it turning into vinegar and without it being horrific. Yeah. Then start to change things, and broadly speaking, change one thing at a time. So try a different honey, or, or blend two honeys together. Or use the same honey, the same yeast, and add an adjunct. Or use the same honey, but use a different yeast. So start changing. <laughs> Unless you just want to have fun. If you want to have fun, do whatever you want. If you want to start learning about where does that flavor come from? Um, right, well, the only thing I changed was the yeast. So that must be because 
going from a white wine yeast to a red wine yeast has brought this change in, or because I added something, or because I used different honey. So you'll be, and then you'll be able to go. Well, that was the last batch. This is a new batch. What's different? And then your mind will start to build a profile of flavors. Here are the things that come from the honey. Here are the things that come from the yeast. Here are the things that come from the fruit. And you'll be able to predict better. So once you've got that kind of reference, those reference points built up in your palate, you can say, right, I'm going to do fifty percent chestnut honey uh, with my wildflower. Well, I can taste the honey. I know that that's going to add chocolatey notes, woody notes, caramels, because I can taste the honey, so I can mm-hmm. kind of predict and you know what you're going to get. Once you've got a yeah. few in your belt, you can start to do that, because you know one thing changed at a time is the, is where that, that flavour comes from. That's yeah. what I spent four years doing at university. It's Change paid off. <laughs> No, I don't so, know if I mentioned at the beginning, this is the first time I'm actually trying your mead. So I've held on. Um, they turned up last week and they've been sat on the side. My wife's been desperate to try them. Um, <laughs> no, we're going to wait. <laughs> so talking about adjuncts, the next one to try, I've got the hedgerow next. Now, remember I said earlier, mead is often sweet, but it does not have to be. So I deliberately, as a market decision, as a commercial decision, decided to not so much focus, but bring in a good range of drier meads. That's a deliberate choice for me, partly because so many meads are excessively sweet. And yes, the historical evidence talks about sweet mead. Brilliant, that's mm-hmm. great. That's not the only way this mead can be. And kind of, it's, I'm trying to balance that tendency for commercial meads to be quite sweet. So the hedgerow is an example of a less sweet mead. Now, this is by far not my sweet, my, my driest. My driest mead, I currently have none of, but my brow to brew again is my mountain ash mead, Rowanberries. And that that was a kind of two fingers up to the wider industry, which produces very sweet and those cloying, syrupy, sugary meads. My two fingers up to them to say, do you know what? Here's a mead that has no honey left. It has all the honey is gone. It is completely mm. dry, but it is not acidic. It's not sour. It's not sharp. It's quite powerful. It tastes exactly. So that was a that was a kind of proving to people meat doesn't have to be sweet. I regularly get people say, "Oh, me, that's obviously isn't it?" No, can you try that? And that'll put the mountain ash in front of them and say, "You tell me if that's sweet or not." And they go, no, "That's not sweet." And it's about yeah. showing wide spectrum of flavour we can get from this product. So that's what you are Sorry, go, go ahead. I'm going to say, I, I've brewed quite a few dry ones myself, because obviously when you start out, it's the easy way to go, isn't it? I mean, you ferment until all the sugar's gone, and they're relatively stable at that point. Um, but yeah, they do come out quite nice as a, they're more like a wine than a, than a yeah. mead, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as a homebrew technique, and a commercial technique, I always brew dry and back sweeten if I need to. So by brewing dry, it, it, it means that you can control the sweetness. If you brew sweet, there's not a lot you can do to make it drier. You can mask, you can sharpen, you can add a bit of acidity, but you can only change it so much. If you go incredibly dry and want it sweet, just keep adding honey until you get to the sweetness level. You can't go all the way. Um, and that's both a home brew technique and a, a commercial technique. That's what I recommend. Always brew dry. Yeah. You can go. So this one here, hedgerow. Hedgerow. Yeah is kind of tapping into the archaeological evidence. So I've mentioned a couple of historical sources that I use. 
um, yeah. sixth century. My archaeological sources really tend from about 2,000 years ago to 5,000 years ago. That's the kind of era I'm looking at. So late in Europe, I'm looking at Europe. There are other yeah. sources, other archaeological mm -hmm. I just focus on Europe. It's what I'm interested in. It's what I know. So we are looking at the very end of the Neolithic period through the Bronze Age and just into the Iron Age, just the, the first hints of the Iron Age. Um, mm. And this is a good example of a Bronze Age mead. So we'll come on to, we'll talk about the archaeology in a minute, but what this is, what hedgerow mead yeah. is, same two honeys, uh, wildflower and heather honey, yeah, and some fruit. Every time I make it, it is different because it's based on what I forage for in that last period. Um, yeah. And I forage all around, mostly within walking distance of the house or the rookery, but occasional jump in the car. But in this yeah. one, we've got things like crab apples, pears, there is raspberry, rowan, hawthorn. Sea buckthorn is the most dominant flavour. Slow. And something else. <laughs> Bramble, blackberries in England. Yeah. Something else, can't remember. Stuff, lots of stuff. Um, every time I make it, it's different. The first one was quite berry in character. It was quite red mm. currenty. The second one was quite herbal. Wasn't very fruity mm. at all, just like full of fruit. This one I described as peachy and citrusy, and that's the sea buckthorn coming through. So, I'm going to say I'm surprised that it's not got more colour to it because it's still the same sort of colour as your other mead. Yeah, and that's down to the acidity. Acidity. So in in fruit and vegetables, your red cabbages, your cherries, all those plums, etc., slows contain a group of naturally occurring chemicals called the anthocyanins. Now, anthocyanins give red to deep purple colours, depending mm. on the acidity. And I can't, there are different acidity bands depending on which colour comes out. Mm. Because of the yeast I use, and I use a, a distiller's yeast, champagne yeasts are very popular for homebrewers making mead. White wine yeasts tend to work very well. I choose to get 70% to use a distiller's yeast, and a particular distiller's yeast that for, for my palate produces quite ester-like flavours, so nice light fruity flavours. But that particular mm. yeast wants to be very close to pH neutral. It doesn't like acidity. So I brew almost bang on, give or take, pH neutral. Yeah. At pH neutral, the anthocyanins do not activate. So if I wanted to get the lovely colours, I'd have to become mm. more acidic for them yeah. to activate. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's the reason. Okay. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Fruity, citrusy, peachy notes, uh, and fairly dry. Oh yeah, that is a lot drier. You make it slight, ever so slightly bitter edge in the aftertaste, just at the back of the tongue. It almost, it's got, because you said there's slows in it, right? It was part yeah. of it. And slows do that thing that you've probably eaten them raw. I think most people yeah. tried them. At some point, where it sucks all the moisture out your mouth. Cannons. And this this does that, but on a very small scale. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of more, drying, yeah. very yeah. mild. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So this one, because of its fruitiness and its complexity, so there's, it's got a general mixed fruit sort of character. That, to me, chilled, works quite well with food. So lots of people think mead. 
how do I drink it? I get asked that in the store all the time. How do I drink it? So this one in particular, I would say, have it with tomato flavours, have it with roasted vegetable type flavours. Maybe a light meat, like pork or chicken, can work quite well with, but it can carry tomato, it can carry herb, it can carry a little bit of spice. Treat it like a wine, that particular yeah. one. And it's not too heavy. So I will mention sweetness versus richness. Mm. They're not the same thing. So my regular meat, the first one we tried, I would argue, is quite a rich meat, at least for my within my range, but it's yeah. not a sweet meat. And when we come to the spruce next, that's quite a sweet mead, but it's not very rich, it's quite light. So you can play with sweetness and richness not being the same thing. So that's the hedgerow. Um, and I say different every time I do it. Mm. Yeah, very and The foraging for me is very important. So going back to those archaeological sources, I, I At the moment, I use seven real, primarily seven sources that I know quite well um, as examples of Bronze Age meads. Now, these are honey fermentations with adjuncts to flavour. This one has nine different adjuncts in it. Yeah. That's a kind of Iron Age and later phenomenon. So having honey in sufficient quantities to commit to brewing, bearing in mind, it's not really until probably the late medieval, if not early modern period, excuse me, we fully understand what brewing is and why. Now we know how to brew for thousands of years, but understanding what yeast cells are, etc., is is modern. So brewing in the old days would have been something of a hit and miss affair. There's a risk involved. Um, honey, pretty much throughout human history, has been a valuable commodity. I was about to say expensive, but valuable. So in whatever you count the value in, whether it's coins or cattle or iron bars, honey has always been scarce and therefore valuable and therefore expensive. So to commit lots of honey to something like this, a honey-only fermentation is quite late, Iron Age. It's not really until the, roughly the Iron Age that we start to become beekeepers in, the, in, in Europe. Prior to that, we're becoming, so we go out and find wild hives and we take the honey and we destroy the hive in the process. You can't therefore go back to that hive straight away because it's destroyed. So you have to go out and find another hive. So honey is honey's rare. Uh, yeah. There is yeah. written evidence from Iron Age Ireland where the destruction of a hive without authority was a capital offence. It was punishable by death. Honey was so precious. So creating honey meats, Iron Age and later. In the Bronze Age meads that I use, these seven different Bronze Age finds, what we're fermenting is honey and cereals, wheat, barley, etc., um, because they're adding extra sugar. So the, the, the barley, the maltings are providing fermentable sugars as well as the honey. And in a number of cases, fruits as well. So they're also providing fermentable sugars. In the, the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, fermentable sugars are quite rare. They're hard to get hold of. So you do not you use everything you can. And of these yeah. different archaeological Bronze Age finds, we tend to find lots of flavoring, lots of adjuncts as well. So the one, one of the ones I look at, um, the ash growth find has got 31 ingredients identified from pollen analysis. And what I'm largely doing is using pollen analysis evidence. Um, mm -hmm. where some, some poor PhD student is sitting on an archaeological site in a portal cabin with a microscope looking through dried up residues from inside of a pot, counting pollen grains under a microscope. 
Fun. Those pollen analyses, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, is a recipe sheet. So if that meat contained, and the ash growth site for me is really important. Remember when I said I use the same two honeys across the whole range, just one exception. The one exception is like the summer meat where I use lime tree honey. And that's because of the ash growth site where the initial analysis identified the honey is coming from the lime trees. So I use lime trees because that's my that's my closest sort of um, nod to the original archaeological evidence because I'm also using the mid, uh, the, um, what do you call it, the heather, which yeah. comes from the Isle of Rum find from about three and a half thousand years ago. So that's got heather in it. And every single one of the archaeological finds of mead that I've looked at from the Bronze Age all contain meadwort, also known as meadowsweet. Meadwort is in everything. So it also contains meadwort. Because I'm directly drawing from those two archaeological finds, I use the same honey as the actual find. So it's the lime tree honey. And when I said earlier how the wildflower honey will be a, a sweet honey, when you take uh, a spoonful of the lime tree honey, it's sometimes known as linden honey, which is a German word. It has a sweetness, but it's got a sharpness too. It's got an almost slightly citrusy edge to it. Mm. And that's an example of a you know, honey that has more than simply sweetness. It's got sweetness and a little hint of sharpness, which comes through in the meat. So that meat itself is fairly dry, but it has mm. a bite to it. It's got an edge, a slight acidity in its flavour. And that's great fun to play with. And, and I'm doing that direct link back to our ancestors 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Literally using the same ingredients they used. Yeah. Which I really enjoy. Yeah. It's as close as you can get it, like you say. I mean, it, without... Uh, and so the hedge, though, is that sort of generic, look, honey plus things I've taken off the hills is how we've been made for 3,000 years. So that's the hedge, And it'll always be different. Hmm. Yeah, it's nice. Nice one. Good. So mm. another one. So medium sweet, kind of medium dry. Spruce mead is now a nice sweet mead, but it's a light mead. Um, this was, this was, I think, quite frustrating in terms of its story because I remember right back at the beginning. This this was the second one I ever brewed, or mm. um, in the first batch. I remember reading some stuff about it. Came up with this really good story. It's really good historical and kind of semi-archaeological background to it, and I cannot find my research. I've searched online, I cannot find the original source. So, oh, no. so I, you know, I can only do it from memory or yeah. from my notes, but I cannot find the source, weirdly. But this was inspired by a drink that was being written about in the 1870s. It was a travel writer traveling through Scandinavia, and he described that the Sami, the indigenous peoples of northern Scandinavia, would make an intoxicating yeah. and hallucinogenic mead from the spruce tree as part of their shamanic tradition. And that's, as far as I can do it, a word-for-word quote. Mm. But that's all we know. I know nothing else. And certainly the archaeological record, there's nothing from that part of the world. I've looked. I've tried. I've, I've been in touch mm. with universities. I've been in touch with experts in Scandinavian food. There's nothing. So, so this is very much interpreted. That's that single sentence. Spruce, intoxicating, right? That's going to be a need as far as I'm concerned, because that's what I make. Yeah. Other sugar sources they could have used, there aren't too many. So meat's a plausible sugar source that they might have fermented in, in those latitudes mm -hmm. anyway. It's not hallucinogenic from the spruce. 
So this is not, there's no hallucinogens in this whatsoever, which did, did lead me on quite, I think, quite an interesting journey to look at what might have been hallucinogenic. Yeah. And the most obvious go-to with the Sami is fly agaric. Were they fermenting the mushrooms? Were they using that? And it is part of their shamanic tradition. And we do know that they do use hallucinogens as part of their shamanic tradition. Mm. Uh, this is all speculative. Obviously, I've never played with this. Um, mm. So that, that's an entirely plausible thing. It's really difficult, yeah. I understand, to accurately dose with fly agaric, which is the hallucinogen. So there are mm. tales of the Sami feeding it to the reindeer and then drinking the reindeer urine. So they're getting a reduced, <laughs> uh, a reduced dose, which they can sip until they get to the right dose for their spirit journey. That's mm. that's accounted for quite, quite thoroughly. That, that, that that's something they would do. So if you were to brew, you could do the same thing. You could sip it until you achieve the, the required dose for your spirit journey. Yeah. Entirely speculative, but that would be a thing that a culture like the Sam could choose to do. So that's my interpretation. Spruce me. It may be something like what the Sami would make things you. Because there's there's a few other um herbs that are rumored to to sort of give your alcohol a bit of a yes effect. Things like bay and rosemary and that kind of thing are rumored to, but I've brewed with them and I don't see any real difference. No, but you don't get a lot of bay in the very north, very north part of Finland. Something you do get lots of is heather. Hmm. Heather isn't hallucinogenic. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not sure what what your legal boundary for this discussion is, but this is all, this for a start is all all entirely. Um, it's all speculative. speculative. <laughs> <laughs> I spent twenty years in the army getting drug tested every blooming time I entered the cab. It's nothing I've ever dabbled with. That's my disclaimer. I have never done. I probably never will. Um, but I'm really, really interested in the cultural outputs of traditional drug taking through shamanic or other practices. Um, so that does fascinate me. Um, but one of the things that is plausible is heather. So heather not hallucinogenic, but there's an ergot infection of the heather stalk. Yeah. Now, somebody... Somebody brilliantly went and did some 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 customer. I, was, I told the story to went away did some research, and I've got somewhere an email with the scientific name, but I can't remember it. But in Scots, it's known as fog, F O double G, and it's a white powdery ergot infection of the stalk of the heather boot mm. plant, which is hallucinogenic. Yeah. Um, now we know there's heather all over the northern parts of Scandinavia. That's that's a possibility that they could have used infected heather to get that effect. Yeah. Just an interesting sideline. Um, yeah. I mean, anyway. um, I know some of like the witch trials and stuff, they think we're probably uh, got poisoning, don't they? Infected bread yeah, is the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyway, spruce me. Spruce me that I mentioned is my best seller. Um, yeah. It's also one of my gold medals. I've got a number of um, punters' choice gold medals from the Camera Beer Festival down in Cambridge. Uh, and this, this was the first of them. Now, you're going to get a sweet mead, but it's light. It's light in the palate. It's going to give you citrus notes. It's going to give you melons and pear drops. And those, remember I mentioned esters. So esters are those chemicals that give you light, fruity, pear-like flavours. And the pear drops are sweet, the confectionery. is what I detect when I drink it. Yeah. So, wow. This is also the one that is most recommended to me, so. Yeah. 
And it's probably going to be like nothing else you've tasted. At least as I mean. No, no, not at all. It's quite a big flavor. Really interesting flavor. Yeah. Mm. There's quite and a what, lot going on there. As I'm picking the spruce tips just as they're budding. So where I am up here, May is my usually May, maybe I think one year it was late April, but May roughly is when I pick it. Um, and there's a big, it's a commercial woodland just behind the rookery on the, the same estate that I rent the rookery on. And I've, I've basically got um, permission to go and take their, their spruce tips. So the That's spruce nice. tip yeah. is about half an inch to an inch long when I pick it. So it, it's the first, it's the new growth on each branch. Sometimes you'll get three, sometimes you've got five buds, one pointing forwards and two or four pointing perpendicular to the branch you've got a little brown husk and as the husk falls off the little bud opens and the fronds come out and it extends so over the period of about a month that'll go from a tiny bud to about a three to five inch new bit of branch both forwards and out then next year each one of those will grow two to uh, three to five buds and so on but I'm picking it just as it's just as the husk has fallen off and it's about to open but hasn't yet opened to get that flavor. Mm. I leave it on the branch another week. I've got a two-week window to get it. I leave it on the branch an extra week, it would taste like that. It might be an interesting flavor. It could be quite piney, resinous, but it wouldn't taste like that. So I guess when you've very... experimented with doing that, have you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've taken pine needles, oh, sorry, Spruce needles yeah. through different parts of the year, brewed them up, and I went for that one. So this is this was a test phase. Now hmm. I've got I've got a sort of a process for new flavors, uh, which is I mean, I'm going to tell you because home brewers might be interested in it. So first, start off with the raw ingredient, whatever your adjunct is going to be, which are a fruit or herb. Learn what it tastes like, eat it. Yeah. Um, second up, I'll make a tisane, a tea of it. Boiling hot water, give it a time to steep, sip it as it steeps. And again, that can be quite, quite an interesting lesson. Make your tea, give it a sip, let it steep for five minutes. Give it another sip, let it steep for another five minutes. And sometimes the flavour just strengthens, sometimes the flavour changes. And a classic example of flavour changing is, is nettle. Um, mm. Nettles picked early in the season are light and peppery. Pardon me, that nettles picked late in the season will be quite, quite soupy, quite bovrily. <coughs> nettles just, just blanched very quickly and taken out of the hot water will be quite light. Mm. Let them steep, you've got bovril again. So the temperature and the, the season of nettles is incredibly significant of what actual flavour you're going to get. Other things less mm. so, but, but it's quite useful to try those different no tisanes after one minute two three minutes five minutes give it some more time try it cold the next day then i'll usually go into a single gallon brew ferment it with the honey what does that taste like and what, what i will sometimes do especially when i'm doing bespoke means so sometimes i do bespoke means for customers somebody wants mm. a wedding or a special occasion so i'll tend to go for a couple of different we'll have a discussion choose a couple of different flavors and then i'll brew up a sweet medium dry version of that one and a sweet medium dry version of that one and a sweet medium dry version of the blend of the two or three flavors they're interested in and we'll have a wee tasting session and say well i like you know, i like um, 
ingredient one when it's sweet barley, ingredient two when it's a wee bit drier. So we'll create them and meet that way. But but that brewing phase is often very important. And then we go up to 200 litres or 400 litres or whatever it is I'm going to do commercially. So that's the kind of thing. Dry taste, design, brew, commercial. Yeah. So developing a mead from, from first concept to commercial in the barrel might take a year or so. Mm. And then you've got the ageing process as well, haven't you? So you add that on. Right, so ageing. There's only one that I've aged. Mm. Some of my meads are old. Only one of them is aged. And I, I use yeah. that those two words deliberately because I brew in a brew in plastic, big 200 litre plastic barrels. I store in either of those 200 litre barrels or 1000 litre IBCs, those things you see in farm, massive white cubes, plastic, food grade plastic, because it's inert, it does not impart any flavour. So I want the meat to taste the same in the first bottle as it tastes in the 400th bottle that I take out of that barrel. Mm. I want that consistent. And I tend to brew in quite, I tend to bottle in quite short batches. So I'll bottle maybe 10 cases, 12 cases, sell that. And when I need some more, I'll bottle another 10 cases and I'll just draw off the barrel as much as I need for the next little period of time. So I kind of need that consistency. So I deliberately use inert storage. Hmm. So that brew, so in the hedgerow I brewed in 20, 2021 bottled it in 22 and we're drinking it in 23 so there's a almost a, an 18 month to your to your lifespan mm. yeah taste the same as it did when i first bottled it the cast reserve is different the cast reserve is aged because that spends time in oak barrels oak yeah. barrels are not inert and they're not sealed they're not airtight so you're getting that chemical exchange of flavours in the presence of oxygen. And essentially that's what barrel aging is. Chemical exchanges in the presence of oxygen. Um, with my plastic barrels, there is no chemical exchanges in the presence of oxygen. Oxygen is limited yeah. and there are nothing in the there are no oils or anything else to exchange in the presence of oxygen. Uh, and that's deliberate. That's a very, very deliberate choice. So, so my needs, with one exception, are not aged, but they could be, well. I've got, I think, eight bottles of lavender mead left. They were brewed in 2017, 2018. I just brewed lots mm. of them, and it's yeah. quite a slow seller. So the eight bottles left are five years old, but they are not aged. As far as I'm concerned, as far as my sales yeah. are concerned, I don't want to trick people into thinking they're getting like a whiskey-type mm. aging. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not aged. So as far as a home brewer is, uh, is concerned, there's no point aging because everyone uses plastic or glass image on. Not quite. So there is what I would describe as a settling period. Um, and it's something I notice and it happens in the glass, it happens in the plastic. For a, maybe for a month or two, you'll get a sort of relaxing. And I, and I can only describe it in fairly zen-like terms. But if you brew a mead, you might have a honey, a honey component and an alcohol component and a fruit component. And certainly in my palate, they might seem quite separate. And then a few months later, they sort of co coalesce and you get alcoholic fruity honey. Yeah. Nothing changes. There's there no qualitative change in the flavours. Those flavours just seem to feel, yeah, I perceive them as less distinct and they become melded. 
but they're still the same yeah. flavor. It's hard to explain. But there is a noticeable difference, a smoothing, but not a significant change. Um, right. Let's have a shot on gorse. So yep. gorse, gorse is horrible. It's it is the unholy union <laughs> of hyperbenic needles and wasps in plant form. I had massively basically rubberized, vulcanized gardening gloves, the best gloves I can find. And I still came out of the gorse bush with loads of little black points in my fingers, which were the needles that went through, which you just have yeah. to sew and wait for them to come out with pasta. There's no, there's no getting around it. It's horrific. So I've bled for this meat. <laughs> um, but the flower is beautiful. It's a beautiful, bright yellow flower. Yeah, lovely. It's yeah. a little taste of the tropics from the highlands. It's going to give a character of coconut and pineapple. Mm. It's a tropical flavour. It's from an evil, evil plant in the Scottish mountainside. It's weird. I planted, I planted two in the garden, so don't. I know how evil they are. Right, just I don't. Do. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're a great plant. Great they're, plant they're a nightmare to plant because you can't handle them. They're horrible, aren't they? Just evil. Yeah. And if you look in the hillsides, certainly where I am, there's broom and gorse. Both give you a yellow plant. And the broom, the broom, the broom is a cuddly, very friendly version of gorse. Gorse is its evil cousin. <laughs> yeah, it is, I mean, it's it's not food safe, but it looks quite similar. But once you learn the difference, once you've been up close and personal, you will never get mixed up again. But but over any heathland, highland, that that just that beautiful brush of bright bright yellow you get in spring through to autumn. And even I've, we had a couple of plants here that um, mm. were um, flowering in December. Just, just one or two individual bushes, but they were throwing flowers out in December. Um, mm. Bright, bright yellow across the hill. It's amazing. Yeah. But it gives me that tropical flavour. Now, this one... A... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, there, there is a, a thing that they think historically it was used for um, tinder for lighting fires. And I've always wondered how the hell you do that. Because it's a nightmare to handle it. Why would you use it to light a fire? I suppose if you leave it to dry out for a long, long time. I, I, it probably just busts into the flames out of pure spite. That's probably what it is. It's just so angry <laughs> it's going to burn. It's, yeah. 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 But yeah, it's a great flavour. It is a great flavour. So and that's the gorse. Now, this is the only one that is currently not available. I, I, last year, I missed the gorse. I, despite having a great season, I missed the bulk of the gorse. And I always want to pick my flowers after a couple of days of dry weather so the nectar yeah. gets built up, so the flavours built up. But just, I, I was so busy last year, I missed this one. So this is the, mm -hmm. so we literally, between us, have the last of the gorse meat on this planet that I'm aware of. <laughs> I split the, the last one. generous water. helping there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll treasure it. Good. But a fun flavour. Yeah, I'm a big fan of gorse. I've brewed wine with it before. Probably. I don't think I've ever used... Have I used it for mead? Do you know? I can't remember. I probably have at some point. Um, but yeah, lovely flavour. Topical, light. So for me, as far as I'm concerned, medium sweet. So quite a bit less sweet on the spruce. Medium sweet, but light and effervescent and fruity and etc. It's like a pina colada with mead. Yeah, <laughs> Um. All right, so that's that. Um, where are we? Right, so we're talking about aging. So what I want to do, yeah, quite quickly, is go back to the first one. Go back to the honey-only mead. 
course. Only one. We've done three okay. with adjuncts. So we've done fruit, we've done a tree, and we've done a flower. Mm. But I thought this through. We're back to honey only me. So just reset. Honey your only. Just to reset. It's a hard life, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the last two. The last two have exactly the same ingredients as what you're drinking now. So these next two are simply wildflower and head of honey fermentations. That's right. it. So basic mead, wildflower and head of honey fermentation. The one exception is what I do is I brew up mm. lots of mead. Some of it goes into the IBC for bottling to make the mead. Some of it goes into oak barrels and gets stored for a year in oak. So the oak barrels I use are barrels for the whiskey industry but they have not been used they're virgin oak they don't have any whiskey in them but they were intended for the whiskey industry so it's exactly what distilleries are making the whiskey in mm. and that's a cask reserve so have we shot of that getting mind but it's exactly the same as the thing you have just drunk Mm. Oh wow! Quite different, isn't it? That is com completely different. <laughs> and that is the exchange of chemicals in the presence of oxygen. That is oak aging, and it's only getting a year. Bearing in mind, whiskies get three years minimum by law, plus whatever else yeah. they choose to. That's simply one year. That's really nice. Um, and there, there are charred oak barrels that I use so again made for the whiskey industry. Um, I've got two barrels, big one and a little one. Uh, the little one is probably, this will possibly be its last use. And I will either exchange it or sell it or whatever, or send it back to the cooperage to get it refurbished. Where they take the iron off, they split it down, they dry it out, they rechar it and put it all back together. So I get a fresh, effectively new barrel. I'm quite, I'm quite fond of my little barrels, quite cute. Right. Um, and it doesn't break my back to lift like or to move like the windows. Um, well, I'll yeah. take it rubbish just because I'm emotionally attached to it. But and that will regenerate yeah. that smoky, charcoaly flavour, that that um, sort of burnt element to it. Mm. And the big one, Maggie Moore, big Maggie and Gallic, it's only the second time I've used her. Um now, so this was the first use of Maggie Moore, this particular bottle that you're drinking. Um, so Maggie Moore's now, it's only batched the second time I've used Maggie Moore. So she's still got lots of charcoal, lots of lots mm. of woody smokiness coming from her. But the wee winner probably needs refurbishing um, next year, probably yeah. for this year. Have you thought about using the ex-whiskey barrels as well, rather than a new I one? I cannot talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have <laughs> two non-disclosure agreements on the rookery for different things I've okay. done through my background is actually intelligence, and in, in some ways, I've got I've got more restrictions on the rookery than I had as, as an intelligence officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yes, you can use. Yeah, you movies. can, but you can't. But one could, one could. There are things one could yeah, do. Yeah, we've actually got the last Master Cooper uh, in the in the country in our town. Excellent. Mm. Uh, yeah, and he's not got an apprentice, so when he's gone, there's no Master Coopers anymore. That's a shame. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Is he advertising? Is he looking for somebody? Do you know? As, 
the last time I did the brewery tour was a few years back and he wasn't planning to get an apprentice. Right. So okay. when he's gone, it's, it's done. Yeah. Well, I went to pick up a barrel from the cooperage, the Speyside cooperage up at Craigalchi, Um And it was an absolute assault in the senses. It was brilliant fun. So it's a massive warehouse. It's, it's like the size of a hangar. And all, all the, the grockles go in the front door, pay for the tour and stay behind glass up in the viewing gallery. I'm one of the proper people. I went in the, the big hangar door, walked past a guy with a blowtorch, charring wood, there was the apprentice section over at the far part. There were barrels getting thrown around. There was the smell of malt, the smell of whiskey, the smell of burning wood. And the noise was phenomenal. It's just a massive tin shed with guys with hammers. It, it's an, an entirely manual industry with very little machinery. It's, mm. it's basically not changed in 3,000 years. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's an assault in the senses. Um, I'm so glad I got to go into the proper floor and not, not stand in the office. I, basically, I, I wasn't invited, I just walked in. But um, rather than going into the office and wait for my barrel to get handed to me, I just walked up and spoke to the guy. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, all, all five senses over, overwhelmed. It's cool. Um, yeah. So that kind of thing. So going back to those Bronze Age needs. Mm. Bronze Age needs, we think, could have been fermented. Well, well we're definitely fermenting pottery. There is a suggestion that you could actually use ground pots. So I think there was some evidence from the Barnhouse find, or one of the finds in Orkney, where you've got pottery things, vats, built into the floor. So you'd have to scoop it out. Pardon me. Right. Barrels don't really, the technology to make barreling doesn't really arrive, arrive until the arrival of the Celts. So about 500 BC, give or take, there are thereabouts. It's important mm-hmm. from you. So the ability to take shape staves and iron bands to make cups and barrels and storage. So something like this would not have been even possible until really late Bronze Age, early Iron Age, <clears throat> because of that barreling technology. <clears throat> um, so that's that one. So again, exactly the same ingredients. The final one, burnt mead. Yet again, the same two honeys fermented. But what happened was um, I was away at an event, but I wanted to come back from the event and start brewing straight away. My dad was also covering an event for me. So he went up, he came up here to deliver the stock back. And he stayed over for, he stayed over a night because of the weather. And I said, look, Dad, can you go down and set up the honey warmer? I built myself a DIY cabinet, put all the honey in, because I buy the honey in big 300-kilogram barrels. I pour them out into plastic tubs, 25 kilograms that I can manually handle, and I put them away. Normally, I brew straight away because the, the honey comes warmed and pourable. But sometimes I've got a, bar, a bucket or two left over, or I buy more than I, I'm currently going to brew, and I'll, I'll store it. But it solidifies. There's no heating mm. in the Um So I built myself this big cabinet, so it's got dual use. I can put the honey in to warm and decrystallize, it's also got secondary use as a malting kiln. So I have done some of malting and I've got taught how to malt by the master malter at Highland Park. So I've done some experimentation. Oh, yeah. That's very fun. So I do have a very rudimentary malt kiln. Mm. Uh, anyway, this, this contraption. I told that how to set it up. And I'd only use it once in anger myself. So I'm going to, right, I think you set it to here. I think you do this, I think you do that. Wife was woken up the next morning with the fire alarm going off. 
um, what what had happened, what I now know retrospectively had happened was there was a bit, there's a little knob to turn the heat up and down, and it's just mm. got a heating element at the bottom of this wooden box. Mm. There's a loose connection. So I told Dad where to set it. And there's a there's a thermometer in there as a, a digital thermometer. Yeah. I went out, I told him to go out, check, check it's the right temperature. I'm looking for this 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 temperature. Now too cold, so he turned it up a wee bit. Oh, it's really, really hot, so he turned it down. And what it was was every time he turned it, he may or may not make the electrical connection correctly. So the yeah. temperature was doing wild and crazy things. So he basically got it right, right, bang on. Yeah, yeah, it's the right temperature, went to bed. Next morning, what had happened was either whatever happened, that short circuit meant that it raced up to far too hot and caught fire. So it had the, the heating lamp at the bottom was starting to smolder, make smoke. And then that set the alarms off. And as the wife went out, Claire went out to go and see what was going on, mm. the beginnings of the flame were starting to appear. So she like closed it all down, turned off the power, and so on. What happened though inside was some of the two of the buckets melted and poured honey onto the heating element, which was what was starting to catch fire. But I had 150 kilograms of honey which had survived the process. Mm. But it was black. It was the colour and consistency of a really thick, heavy treacle. Basic heat damage and smoke damage. Mm. So first thought is, oh, that's annoying. Second thought was, hmm, I wonder what that would taste like. So I had a whole three seconds of that's a bit of a shame before I came up with, well, what am I going to do with it? I'm going to brew it. And this is where the burnt meat comes from. So it is literally heat and smoke damaged honey. Now, I'm only using mm. one part damaged honey to three parts regular honey. So apart from, so only one quarter of it is any different. You can't really see the colour there well, but... Um, so it's yeah, quite it's a bit darker than the others, isn't it? It's, it's significantly dark. pretty Pretty similar, but... Yeah. It's got the colour almost of a dark rum. I don't know whether um, that will come out. Um, it, yeah, it, I think it comes out better for you than it does for me. Yeah. So we've got this almost like a dark rum colour. It's got chocolate and coffee notes. It's got treacles and caramels. It isn't massively sweet. So it's a similar sweetness to the mead, yeah. but it's a lot heavier. And again, sweetness and richness are not the same thing. It's a lot heavier. So is this a one-off as well? Or is this, have you managed no. to replicate it? So because I had 150 kilograms, that's enough to make about five or six barrels of which I've done barrel five. I've probably got one more barrel left, but I'm going to experiment and work out how to do it again. Um, it has been such a good seller. I can't afford not to. <laughs> this is my retirement plan. Um, the fourth barrel last, the barrel's about, give or take 200 litres, about 300, 200 and something bottles, 250 bottles. The first time I put that on the shelf, it lasted three weeks before it was sold out and I had to brew the next one. I've now got the second barrel lasted a similar length of time. Barrels three, four, and five have just gone through the filter this weekend. Um, so that will that'll be on, that's on the shelf now. That went on the shelf on Sunday night. Um, it's like liquid toffee. Yeah. Yeah. All, all <laughs> the science of caramelization is incredibly complex. I don't understand that. I don't think food scientists fully understand it. And I've looked a wee bit into it, like mm. what's going on here is hugely complex. Um, down to which sugars you have, which temperatures, where the temperatures and oxygen present, all those different parameters mean 
the level of the complexity of flavor that comes out is immense as well. As that's why I say coffees, I say chocolates, I say charcoal, there's toffee, there's caramel, there's all these things. Mm. and green. It's exactly the same as that one in terms of what I put the inputs are the same. Just one of those honeys got heated. I like your mindset and how you've managed to turn a negative into a positive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Like most and people just be, oh my God, it's a complete you know, tragedy. We've lost it and you've gone, no, nah, we can work with that. What was annoying was the week it took me to get the floor toffee cleaned up. So the stuff that fell onto the heating element got cooked yeah. even more and it poured out of the box onto the onto the concrete floor. And it was some of it was toffee and some of it was cinder toffee, you know, that honeycomb stuff. Yeah, yeah. Every every day, Gwen, boil up oh, a burnt of water and then put boiling water, mop, boiling water, mop, come back the next day, boiling water, mop. <clears throat> I've, I mean, I, I've experimented with making cinder toffee, toffee, uh, jam, and uh -huh. most of them at some point I've had go over and burn the cooker top. So, <laughs> yeah, and that's on a small scale. So I, I feel you I had 50 kilograms of that to, to, to clean up. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, no, like really it was good fun to do. Um, and just actually the, the, the honey itself is amazing. And what, what I found was some of it was cleaning up by mm. getting my fingers under it and rolling it and picking it up off the floor. I mean, it was stretching all the skin. I could pick up handfuls of it. And obviously I tried it. And you take a spoonful, eat it. You have to chew it. It's, it's a thicker consistency than like Cadbury's caramel, you know, it's thicker mm. than that, not quite toffee, but it's yeah. thicker than Cadbury's caramel. Um, yeah, it's amazing, mm. it's kind of like the Guinness of mead. <laughs> yeah, nice. So that's the full range done. That's well, small that I've got. I do. So, yeah. like I say, yeah. course is not available, everything else is on the website. <laughs> so I, I sell through mm. a number of stockists around the country. Mm. Uh, I sell in person at various markets. I've got Stirling Farmers Market this weekend. I, for business reasons, I'm doing a little bit less for the next few months, but then I'll pick it up again in the autumn just, just for personal reasons. And I'm taking a little bit of an easier first six months because last last year, God, it was mental. Um, and it was too much. I took on too much and I did too much. Um, so I want a little bit of time back. I'm still brewing. I'm still sailing. I'm still doing everything. I'm just not going to be everywhere. Um, but I do things like the Whitby Goth Festival, I do Canberra Beer Festivals, I do medieval events. I, I mean, Colchester for me is like almost the high point of the year, the Colchester Medieval Fair yeah. um, and things like that. So I, I'm around the country and you can go to the rookery.scot, the website, and buy it direct. Mm. So Goss is not available, might be out next year. So by the time I get around to picking it and doing it, so late this year, early next year, I think I've got 10 on the shelf right now, of which we've tried five. So crab apple just came out. Uh, I just put that on the shelf this weekend. Pear mead, I've got three bottles of slow left. I've got something like two of bramble. Uh, what else have I done? Plum. Plum's quite a subtle one. I've got lavender. I've, I say only a few bottles of that left, but I will be rebrewing it. I've just, what else have I done? Mountain ash. I think, I think I'm mountain ash, but I'm rebrewing that. Uh, Midwinter. Sorry? With your, with your lavender one, do you yes. brew with the flour or do you use lavender honey? Dried flour. So yeah, same, yeah, again. Mm. The same two honeys across all but one. It's the lavender yeah. flour. 
But what I found was it's it's a very, very intense, strong, and quite unusual flavor, which some people love, a lot of people don't. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna experiment with that and I will see. Yeah. I'm gonna play with it. So when I used to do it as a home brewer, it used to come out almost like the gorse, very, very light, effervescent, and subtle. I'm, mm. I think that would sell better, and I'm going to see if I can replicate that. But mm. if not, I'll go back to what, what I've been doing. So that, that's yeah. that's a bit of um, yeah. Mm. I think I think on my board now, it's 23 flavors, but obviously I, I cannot keep all of them in the shelf all the time. Yeah. particularly when I'm also doing the foraging. So there are very few ingredients I buy in. So some obvious ones, so my midwinter mead is based on 12th century trade information. So it's a yeah. bunch of flavors that became really popular in England after the first and second crusades, 11th, 12th century. So that's oranges, ginger, and frankincense. Well, obviously they're not native. So those I buy in. I buy in the lavender, although I may switch to English lavender rather than French, which I currently use, just just if I can get the flavour, just see what flavours do. I'm going to try it. Um, those were, yeah, ginger I mentioned. I think that's I think that's it. Everything else I pick off the hills. So it's seasonal. It's hours on the hill. It's effort. It's yeah. It's all those things. It's storage as well. Um, so I, I cannot keep 23 flavours on on the go at all times. It's just impossible. And I don't can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Life we shot spend every single day. So, um, yeah, it is, it is a feature, not a not a bug of my company. That yeah. if you see something you like, get it because it might not be there next year. Um, flavors will come in out of season and so on. And sometimes I'll run out of something, but one of my stocks will have a bottle left and so on. Yeah. So it is one of those things. You you'll get what I give you. You'll get what's what's there. And if you don't see what you want, wait. It's just there'll be something else. Yeah, oh, you've got enough of a range also, to try it. Yeah, yeah it's to choose from. And it also keeps it interesting for me. So I do not want to become a factory manager with lots of people producing carbon copies of what they did last year and the year before. Mm. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, want, yeah. I want to be a brewer. I don't want to be a factory owner. Um, and I completely accept that suppose this year will change slightly, next year will change slightly, the year, the year after will be slightly different the time after that. It's because mm. it's handmade and it's natural. Um, I mean, no apologies for the hedge The hedge is deliberately different each time. Others, I will use my skill to make it as consistent as possible, but it's as consistent as a handmade natural product can be. Um, there will be variations from year to year. Even just the honey will change, the flowers will change. So mm. there is inherent variation of what I do. And as I say, I make no apology for that. That's a function of what I do. Do you have a favourite? Is yeah. that like picking your favourite <laughs> child? So <laughs> I have two favourites. The, the cash reserve and the spruce are my personal taste favourites. The slightly cheeky answer is whatever sells best, what makes me most money. But I tend to go for the, the favourite one. The one I will drink is the one I've most recently made. Yeah. Because it's in use, it's novelty. All right, what's this one doing? And I have to drink it till there. <clears throat> So I can sell it. So my favorite is also the most one, the one that I'm currently newest to, because I'll take that, take a couple of bottles home and just sip on it. And I have to work out how to sell this, how to explain it, how to describe it, what story to yeah. tell. Because uh, apart from anything else, a lot of what I'm doing, customers have never tasted. So if I went with a gin, if I made gin, most people know what gin tastes like. If I make a yeah. rose gin, 
most people can say gin plus rose. Oh, I know what that's going to taste like. Mm. If I say gorse mead, most people have got a clue. Yeah. So I have to I have to sit and think about how am I going to explain each thing because at a medieval event, I will have a cue. That's brilliant, really good for the bank manager because they know what mead is and they quite often know what my mead is. When I stand in the rain in Sterling Farmer's Market, as I will on Saturday, I've got to get Auntie Jeannie to come up to this weird stall with this beardy guy to try to think she's never even heard of. You get a feel. So and it's really interesting. I've done a wee bit of the business analysis. So my rapidity of sale at something like a Colchester or a Largs Viking Festival will be how fast can I put the bottle in the bag and take the money? It will be that sort, nearly that sort of thing. It's like it's I count it in tens of seconds, sometimes or a minute or so yeah. from arrival to sale. Mm. When I'm at a farmer's market, it can be a, a seven to nine minute sales pitch to explain. So what is me? I mean, and and I I yeah. is that whiskey? No, it's mead, it's fermented honey. Oh right, does it taste like whiskey? No, it tastes of fermented honey. It's, it's alcoholic honey. Oh, right. So you add whiskey to it? No, it's fermented honey. It's, it's a little bit of honey that's alcoholic. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, the boy's got whiskey. You like whiskey? <laughs> and that conversation was around a few times until we've tried a few. And go, it doesn't taste like whiskey, does it? No, Hen, it doesn't. <laughs> it's because it's not whiskey. And that's quite a, sometimes it's quite an extended explanation of yeah. sales pitch. Yeah. Um, process in some places because they're just not expecting they've never even heard the word they don't know what the word mead is so some places brilliant and aware educated audience and I just have to convince them that mine is worth buying others it is right back to the basics all right so 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 you, it's made it's honey well, well it's fermented honey is it alcoholic fermentation and I get I get sarcastic I get rude. I can't help it. Have you ever had wine? Oh, yeah. It's like wine, but with honey. All right, so it's made from wine. No. <laughs> it's really difficult to tell. It's really quite interesting. But what my trick is, is getting to cross the no man's land, those two meters to the stall, and go, yeah. just have a taste. Once you have a taste, then I usually get my sale. But it is, mm. it's an interesting sales pitch, depending on where I am. Um, mm. And it's that whole, but I've never heard of it before. It's, it's strange. It's unusual. And getting somebody to part with better, you know, 20 quid plus of it, mm. something three minutes ago, I didn't even know what the word meant. That's quite a sales challenge. And I, I do really enjoy yeah. it, but it's quite a sales challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I often find people say to me, oh, um, I tried mead once. I didn't like it. <laughs> yes. But then, but then you go, well, what and did you try? And you find out it was one of the great base things with honey added to it. Well, you haven't tried mead. So now you need to try mead. <laughs> and, and that's, I've got to be careful with that. So one, I've had that conversation so many times and I get bored and frustrated and probably a little bit grumpy unfairly because that person is new to this. And that's, that's, not, that's not kind. So I have to take a moment. No, okay, right. So, so, so try this one. Um, yeah. Because it's not fair. Those products have a place. Um, they have a place in getting people into the word mead and then into what is good mead and then what is expensive mead. I, I, again, I make no apologies. I'm quite mm. dear. Not the dearest anymore, but I am quite dear. You can mm. buy a honey based drink for 
Okay, honey basement for half the price. You can buy a drink which has honey flavorings for a quarter of the price of me. Right? Um, that has a place. That definitely has a place. Um, I just wish my, my issue is really be a bit more honest with your labeling, be a little bit more clear mm. what you're buying. But apart from that, I have no, I have no real complaints. That has a place. Yeah. Um, my trick is to convince a person to fork out double what they otherwise might have done. But there's a reason why. And, and yeah, and, that, and that's also sometimes an interesting sales pitch. Um, and some people go away and say, no, nah, I'll stick to what I know. Yeah, babe. Others mm. go, well, I've just bought this one already. Um, what shall I do with it? Which is lovely. <laughs> when somebody's yeah. willing to just go, all right, I'll, um, yeah, I'll put that down, I'll take yours at twice the price. That That is a huge compliment um, to be paid mm. to me. Mm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed all of them. They were all, yeah, all really nice. Um, I do think the cask reserve, because it's the most interesting, it's the one I've never tried anything like it before. Uh, all the burnt, I think, are actually, is it probably because they're newer to me and I've not tried anything like them. Burnt um, an exceptional seller. The cask is a very good seller despite its additional price. And actually, I, I sell this at a premium price because... I've already spent maybe six months or so brewing that. It then spends another year. I'm also, I can only make 320 bottles at a time because of my barrels, barrel sizes. I only make it once a year. So I bottle it in October. It gets taken out the barrel in October every year, ready for the Christmas sales run. Um, yeah. It's inherently limited. Every bottle, I mean, it's a, mm. whether it's important or not to other people, I every bottle gets its own batch and serial number at the back so I'm, I'm trying to make it a premium product but it is a special flavor and it's limited so yeah. and despite that i sell out long before i'm ready for the next batch to come out so mm. it's, it's good for the business so yeah it's a very very popular one it's, yeah. it's just a level beyond yeah really nice yeah so i've got some questions that i ask all my guests sure. If you're happy, we've covered everything that you want to talk about. Yeah. I think we've covered a fair amount of stuff. We have we have covered some ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you could almost do a two or three parts, couldn't you? Because there's so yeah. much history and everything involved with, with brewing. It's uh it's a big topic to cover in one. Didn't even cover the Bill Beaker people and the arrival of them in Europe and the male drinking cult theory of uh late Neolithic Europe. So much more to cover. Part two. Part two, there you go. <laughs> I'm happy to do another one if you are. <laughs> so go on. good. Um, yeah, right. So I better just remind myself of what my questions are now after six bottles of mead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first question is, if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? Within mead or wider? In fact, no, I can answer that with both. It could, so it could be I anything want... you like. What I want to do is have a small piece of Scottish hillside that I can rewild. That, that's why I'm working. That's why I'm putting money in the bank. I want to... So I've, I've talked about archaeological evidence and, and sources. Yeah. There's, an, there's a piece of archaeology from the next glen all, all, to the east of me, Glen Sheep, where it was looking at Bronze Age settlements and it's a piece of soil analysis, that same pollen analysis. And essentially it is a planting list as far as I'm concerned for Bronze Age Scotland. Mm. I want my little bit of Scottish hillside that I will, I will, to the best of my ability, and people out there might have views on rewilding, but to a certain extent return to its Bronze Age state before the loss of the Caledonian forest 
and let nature do its thing. And that's both a, a thing for the meads, so I'll be able to forage from it, because most of what I do is based on things that were available to our Bronze Age ancestors, and it's a thing I want to do just for the planet. Awesome. Oh, yeah, that's a really good answer. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, the next question is, do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? Which I guess depends how much you know about Viking Age, because you're more pre pre Viking, aren't you? I've covered quite a lot, so I mean, yeah, yeah, I think I probably could. I would miss lots of things, but I suspect I probably could. Um, probably. There is a follow up question that's tied to that. Based on I was about to say whether I could achieve a Viking Age diet, whether my farming and hunting skills are anywhere close to it. I think I probably could. Yeah. Well, the follow-up to that is, is there any food that you would miss or drink? Yeah, I love Japanese flavours, uh, Japanese cuisine. I spent a, a month in Japan uh, leading an army expedition through the Japanese Alps. Mm. And because of where we were, we, were, we did have a time in Tokyo at the end, but we spent three and a half weeks where it's at one point, remember, I had my birthday in the middle of the event and we stopped we were in this glen this valley somewhere in the middle of the japanese alps yeah. and we got talking to the locals and i did speak a bit of japanese at the time i've lost most of it but i learned some japanese to do this trip because most people didn't speak english and um, there were no burger king and becks it was all on the, what we'd say in the army on the japanese net the japanese network i remember having this chat saying we've never had white people here before so this area was a common tourist area for Japanese tourists. Yeah. But they had, they, they, I mean, it may have been blown smoke, but you said they, they, were, they had not had Europeans here in living memory in this mm. part of their brain. That was amazing. I would miss Japan and Japanese cuisine. I think I would be one of them. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what I'll go for. Japanese yeah. food. Three bonus questions for you. Uh, so the first one is, what's the worst food you've ever eaten? I'm, so going back to your Viking food question, I have a sort of, phobia is far too strong a word, but an issue with meat on the bone. I can eat meat off the bone if I have a moment to prepare. And it's something when I order food, I'm a little bit careful. So if it's a chicken thing, I can, mm. is it chicken leg or chicken breast? I need to check. Um, so meat in the bone is something I have difficulty with. I'm quite, quite broad mm. apart from that. I remember, if you've got a moment, years ago we were in the Waverley. Mum and I took a trip in the Waverley, the, the Stats uh, paddle steamer boat that used to sail out of Ayrshire, Ayrshire where I grew up. We went to the Waverley, really nice day, had lunch at the wee restaurant inside, and I had chicken and chips. I, I was about 10, 9 or 10, chicken and yeah. chips. And this bare plate of a, an oven-roasted chicken leg and some chips arrived. And mm. I looked at it and looked at it and I can. Because it, it, was, it was a surprise. As I say, I can, I can work up. If I'm going to some good house or whatever, I can prepare myself mentally. But this just arrived. just can't. Yeah. So we said, well, I'm not going to waste it. Should we take it back to the dog? Yeah, take back the dog. So we wrapped up in a napkin, put it in mum's handbag, and we cracked on. And the wee girl, the waitress came back. It was the same waitress that put down a chicken leg in front of me. And I'd eaten all the chips. And she yeah. picked up this plate that was completely empty and she looked in horror at me. And you could see, he ate the bone. So yeah, chicken bones. 
meat and the bone. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so what's the most memorable meal you've ever had? At university. So I did Gaelic studies at university in Aberdeen. Um, my now wife, then girlfriend, was in the same course just a year behind me. So we did Gaelic studies. We ran the Aberdeen, no wrong, the University of Aberdeen Reenactment Society. We ran URs. Um, so we did lots of sword fighting all the rest of it. Um, and it was the Christmas of my final year, players third year. And we decided to have a medieval banquet. So in, in my in my flat, uh, so essentially in my bedroom. But we had a couple of my reenactment friends. Claire, me, and we invited our two favourite lecturers. So Meg Bateman is a, an absolute um, sort of centre of the Gaelic world, beautiful poet in her own right, as well as an academic, but she was she was just Meg. Uh, so we invited Meg over and Uncle Colm, Colm Professor Colm O'Boyle, um, mm is again Irish and Scots Gaelic scholar historian. He taught me almost everything I know about Celtic civilization and Celtic history. Crack and crack and mm -hmm. still at university, still up, up in Aberdeen. So we've got a bunch of students and mates, plus two very highly considered lecturers and academics in, in the, the field. And the meal started with the, the fight for the hero's portion. So we see this in some of the Irish mythology. The champion of the day gets the first cut of meat. So we went out into the street with swords and shields and fought. Anyone who's done reenactment might suck of treachery. Every person for themselves, all rules are forgotten, all bets are off. Any trickery, subterfuge, ganging up, anything goes. Um, so my friend Wolf won the hero's portion that day. Meg and Colm are looking at the window going, What's going on? <laughs> we came in, but all the food, or as much of the food as I could, was either from local farms. We had no plates. We built, we, we baked bread trenchers. Yeah. So the table had no plates on. We put down a flat bread, and you got your stew on your bread. You ate the stew, and then you scooped up the bread. Mm. The greens were foraged. This, this is my first foraging, foray into foraging. Yeah, that's probably one of my most memorable meals. It was just brilliant fun. Really silly. All the beer. It was either beer or meat, everything I brewed. We cooked. Yeah, was, that's possibly one of my most memorable meals. Awesome. So the last question is, you've died and your family right. are preparing your grave goods. Uh -huh. What food and drink do you get to take to Valhalla? Mead, obviously. Um, Have to be. So I've always thought about my grave goods, but I've not considered... The food and drink beyond mead. So for me, my my sword would be there. Um, and a couple of other things, and possibly my bow. I'm not a great archer, but I love archery. Uh, I did my dissertation on a bow, on a thing called the if, anyone who's looked at their Celtic mythology might have heard of Cahillan, the Hound of Ulster. Mm. Uh, it's on one of the four cycles of Irish mythology, and it's known as the Hanbow Cooley or the Cattle Raid of Cooley. So Cuchulain defended Ulster against the combined armies of Meath, Connacht, and, and then the other one, Linster. Um, mm. And most renditions talk about a magical thunderbolt weapon gift from the gods. It wasn't, it was a, it was a bow. And so my dissertation was a, an archaeological, physical modelling of that weapon. 
Yeah, food and drink, it'd have to be mead. Mead and bread. <laughs> Probably mead and bread. bread. Yeah. Any, I mean, any particular bread? The bread is about as basic as it gets. I mean, our earliest, earliest agrarian ancestors in the fertile crescent just started grinding grains and cooking them. Mm. Uh, and even before that, even before we were agrarian, in the hunter-gatherer phase, we were still gathering grains, grinding them and heating them by the fire. Kind of goes as about as far, almost as far back as food goes. Yeah, something like that, maybe. A nice basic bread. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on yes. and for sending me the mead. My pleasure. Much appreciate. Um, yeah, and I'll pop some links underneath the video as well for people to sort of find your website and stuff. All right. Bye, so, everyone. Thank you very much. See you for now. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening. <laughs>